0: Good morning, let me uh, go to the Lord for us in prayer one more time for our sermon this morning. Lord, we do praise you and thank you for the love that you have shown us in Jesus. You are truly a loving God. And we do ask now, Max, as we begin a study in the book of Malachi, that you are, would open our eyes, open our eyes to see and understand your love understand what you have done for us in Jesus and to respond accordingly in light of our our very many sins that we even still maintain, sins coming to know you. Grant us now the power of your spirit purify us by your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I invite you all to turn with me to the book of Malachi. As Pastor Paul mentioned, we're starting an intermittent series through the book of Malachi. We'll spend eight Sundays, not in a row, this Sunday and next Sunday, and we'll split it up. But eight Sundays total, we'll preach through the entire book. Now, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. So if you're looking, it's one of the minor prophets about three-quarters of the way through your Bible, right before the book of Matthew. Last book in the Old Testament before the New Testament short it's a short book short prophetic book by one of the last if not the last speaking and writing prophet before the days of Jesus in many ways it is the last word of the old testament which is then followed by 400 years of waiting what is the last word that god had for the people of israel while they found themselves entering a time of waiting now, if you join us for a prayer in the evenings, you are aware that one of the things that we regularly pray for is more people hearing the word preached and being saved, more non-believers hearing the word, hearing the gospel, hearing about Jesus, and coming to believe in him. And that's something the elders have been particularly praying for lately. We want to see people respond to the gospel, to know God's love in Jesus. We want you guys to go out with the gospel and also to bring people in, unbelievers in, to come and hear about Jesus so that they can be saved. If you are an unbeliever here this morning, right now, we want you to be saved. The aim of our preaching is not for you to adopt some new morals or refine your political tastes or change your culture. Sure, the gospel will refine you. It will change you. But that's not Our main goal, Jesus is the only name given to man by which man can be saved. The aim of our preaching is to introduce you to and confront you with Jesus so that you might know him, recognize him as creator and king and savior. The aim of our preaching is for you to know God's love because knowing Jesus is knowing God's love. The title of this morning's sermon is I Have Loved You that's not me talking. I might not know you very well, and you might find me claiming to love you to be trite. I'm not claiming to love you. No, that's God talking. The title is a direct quote from God from our opening passage in Malachi. In fact, all of the titles for the sermons from Malachi are particularly important quotes from God in the book. So you might hear today's title quote, I have loved you. And you also have in mind our desire to see more people saved and think, ooh, maybe Malachi will be a good book to invite my non-believing friend to hear. Well, hold up. I don't want you to get the wrong impression. Just for your information, the title quotes from God for the next three sermons are, I have no pleasure in you. You have corrupted the covenant and you have profaned the sanctuary. So now that you know that, yes, this is a good book for you to invite your non-believing friends to hear. Because in Malachi, we will be confronted with the worst parts of ourselves, even after we profess to follow God. And we will see the saving glory of Jesus Christ and how he overcomes. And this morning's sermon text is Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It's God's introduction to his whole message in the book. And so it fittingly sets the tone and the direction for how you read the rest of the book. So if you haven't already, please open up your Bibles, be there, write in Malachi 1, verses 1 through 5. I'll read it out loud together for us. The Oracle of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. What we just read is the beginning of, as it describes, the oracle of the word of the Lord. An oracle is just, a fancy word for an authoritative pronouncement. This is an important announcement by Malachi. The Hebrew word underlying it conveys something heavy. This is Malachi's burden for the people. Malachi himself is an otherwise unknown prophet. We don't really catch any glimpses of him in the historical records in Kings or Chronicles. But what we do know is that he is prophesying, he, he's bringing this burden during, the, during roughly the same period as uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. Right? During the years after the exile of Israel had ended. You remember, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah were totally destroyed. By the early 6th century BC, Judah was a kingdom no more. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had wiped Judah off the map destroyed the temple in Jerusalem, he ended their sovereign kingdom, and he took most, at least the important people, uh, to Babylon in exile. And there they lived for 70 years until Cyrus of Persia defeated Babylon, and the Persians became the new ruling empire of the Eastern world. Cyrus had a much different foreign policy when it came to subjugated peoples, and he allowed the Jews to leave Babylon, go back to Jerusalem and Judah, and resettle in the Promised Land. Now, of course, they they weren't an independent kingdom anymore. Now they were just a province in the Persian Empire. But at least they could go home. And one of the first things they did when they got home was they got to work on rebuilding the temple, the place where God's presence was uniquely manifested, the center of their corporate and ritual worship. However, the people quickly lost interest, and the temple languished unfinished while the people attended to things that they thought were more important more worthy of their time and energy. Then along comes the prophet Haggai who calls the people to repent and get back to work on the temple. And by God's mercy, they did. And then God sends leadership in Ezra. He, he provided for the building. He gave favor with the governing officials. He helped the people overcome neighboring enemies and the temple was rebuilt. Now, Malachi was living and prophesying during this time after the temple was rebuilt. They're back in exile, back in the promised land. They have a temple again. They have everything they need to be faithful to God. Or do they? The people that Malachi was preaching to were apathetic and unfaithful. That's why he was called. That's why he has this important announcement. It's an announcement to the people who on the outside have everything they have for right worship and fellowship with God find themselves apathetic and unfaithful nonetheless so let's look at the actual oracle at least right at the beginning right at the start of verse 2 look at God's introduction to his apathetic and unfaithful people I have loved you says the Lord the first thing he says I have loved you does that hit you at all how does it hit you You know, it's become cliched, at least in in our circles, to to bemoan a a type of preaching that preaches the love of God in a way that minimizes or even hides the fullness of his attributes. That is to say, to try to preach the love of God without preaching the justice of God or the, the holiness of God. And that is indeed a travesty. In point of fact, you cannot really preach the love of God without preaching both the justice and the holiness of God. But there are some who believe that such preaching is what people want to hear. It will be attractive to non-Christians, and that's what will compel them to come. One Reformed preacher, in criticizing such preaching, said, Of course people will come if you preach that way. Everyone wants to hear that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But I'm not so sure that's true. Does everyone want to hear about the love of God? Look at how the Israelites responded to God's declaration of love. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Of course, this is not a record of a literal dialogue, but it is revealing the Israelites' real heart in response to God's assurance of love. God knows the heart, and he knows that this is the response the Israelites feel toward God's declaration. This isn't just what they say. It's what they feel. How have you loved us? This is not a request for more information. This is a rhetorical question. The implied answer is, you haven't. You have not loved us. This is a sarcastic, indignant, and doubting response. You see, a surface-level proclamation of the love of God isn't necessarily a strategy for winning converts, superficial or otherwise, because some people just don't want to hear it. It rings hollow to them. Maybe that's you now. Brothers and sisters, maybe that's you now. You hear some preacher up front declare God's love for his people, and you feel, yeah, he loves me? How? Have you seen my life? Do you know what I've lived through? Do you know what I still have to live through every day? I don't see God's hand. I don't know his care. I do not feel his love. What kind of love is that? How has God loved me? Whether you are a believer who feels this way or a non-believer who feels this way, how God answers you this morning is critically important. It might be the most important thing you hear all month. An answer God does. In fact, if you're going to understand the following two and a half verses, the rest of the oracle, you have to keep in mind that at each step of the way, God is answering the question, How have you loved us? In his answer, God defends his love and he shows us four true marks of true love. Four true marks of true love. Now I use the word true twice on purpose. We find both an explication of what true love from God is and what true love is truly marked by. So for the rest of our time, we will consider these four true marks of true love from God. Number one, God's love is an electing love. Look together. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? And God says in response, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. God asks a question. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? And it's a punctuated question. God asks the question and then the text closes the quote with the line, declares the Lord. In other words, just by asking the question, God is making a point already before he even goes on. What we see in this initial question is that God's love is an electing love. It is is a choosing love. It is not passive, it's active. God seeks and sets his love on people. God's love involves his free, his sovereign choice to set his affection on particular people. That's what God is implying by asking the question. God chose Jacob, but not Esau. Now, notice what's in view here is not a general love for all of mankind. This is not about God's general provision and his kindness in his good creation, what we call God's common grace to all people. No, this is about God's particular saving love that he sets on his people and only his people. It is a love that Jacob knew, but not Esau. As we mentioned briefly already in the service, Jacob was one of the patriarchs of Israel. In fact, it's Jacob whose other name was Israel that the people are named for. We've got the three patriarchs of Israel, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Back in the very beginning, in Genesis, we see how God made a covenant with Abraham. And he established his purpose to redeem and restore all of creation by making a special promise to Abraham. And then he continued that covenant with Isaac, Abraham's son. And then we read that God continued that covenant with Jacob, Isaac's son. He continues his special saving work through Jacob's line. But Isaac had two sons. Jacob was not an only child. The answer, or, uh, uh, yeah, the answer to the question, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Is yes, Esau was Jacob's brother. And the point in asking is calling your attention back to Genesis. The point in calling your attention is that God could have chosen Esau. God could have given all the covenant promises to Esau. Esau was not only Jacob's brother, they were twins. Not only were they twins, but Esau was the older twin. So by all rights, at least according to the ancient custom, Esau should have been the one to get any special inheritance. Esau should inherit the covenant promises. It should be the nation of Esau. But it's not. It's the children of Jacob, the people of Israel. Furthermore, God set his love on Jacob before they were born. It's not like Esau was so bad that God had to then default to Jacob. In fact, as you read the story, they both don't look that pretty in the beginning. Uh, But it doesn't matter because the choice was made before they were born. As we read earlier in the service from Genesis chapter 25, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And also, as we read from Romans 9, the apostle picks up on this, and he lays out the implication explicitly as he quotes from both Genesis and Malachi. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born... And had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. How have you loved us? God's answer is, I chose you when I didn't have to. When I could have chosen someone else. Esau was stronger, more desirable by many metrics, at least more of a manly man. Isaac liked him best. But God chose Jacob, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Like God said in Deuteronomy to the whole nation, I loved you not because you were more righteous than any of the other nations, but because I loved you. God's electing, choosing, and selecting love includes the gift of faith right? Jacob and Esau both started out pretty bad, but God spent the rest of Jacob's life working faith into his heart. That was a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You hear that again, like, just like Paul said in Romans, not because of works. There's your connection. God chooses not because of works, and he gives faith not because of works. Those whom God predestines to be conformed to the image of His Son, He calls and justifies. He calls effectively. He produces faith in you to unite you to Himself through faith in His Son. If you are here this morning believing in Jesus, that's how God has loved you. It didn't have to be you. It didn't have to be me. Grace Covenant Baptist Church could still be here and could be composed of an entirely different crowd. Pick pick your greatest strengths, your best qualities, your most desirable attributes. Think about everything that you bring to the table. Meditate on your absolute best as you consider this truth. We could find a replacement for you. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. All you need is Google and Facebook, and you could find 10 better Jeremiah's in 30 minutes. Smarter, better looking, more successful, more industrious. We could do it for any of us. It didn't have to be us. But God chose us in Christ when he could have chosen someone else. In fact, the only thing I could match those 10 better Jeremiahs in is that I am equally sinful. I am equally undeserving of being chosen by God. The only thing I have going for me is that I have nothing going for me. You are equally undeserving of being chosen by God. It didn't have to be us. It didn't have to be anyone. But God chose us in Christ and he gifted us faith How has God loved you? He chose you to believe. Number two, God's love is a discriminating love. God's love is a discriminating love. Now, often when we hear the word discriminate, it has a very negative connotation, but I'm using it in its neutral sense, as in recognizing a distinction, making a distinction. God's love makes a distinction between those whom he chooses and those whom he does not. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. The parallel to loving Jacob when he didn't have to is hating Esau. God is expounding on his love, defining it in relationship to his hatred. Or Another way to say that is God is saying, I loved you by not hating you. Which for some, as Paul mentioned, is a very uncomfortable thing to say. I thought God is love. What does it mean for God to hate someone? As we see in in Scripture, especially where God's hatred is discussed, it means that God does not hold back the full force of His righteous wrath against sin. The Bible does not sugarcoat God or us. We tend to want to sugarcoat both, uh, especially sugarcoating ourselves. In fact, if you sugarcoat yourself enough, you don't really have to sugarcoat God because you won't have any problems with God because you're just peachy. But the depravity of man is not up for debate. You know it from experience, from everything you've ever seen and heard and everything you've ever thought or felt. You know it when you see a child steal and hit and scream, all without ever being taught to. You know it when you read about rape and murder and kidnapping, abuse and corruption. You know it when the absolute worst of you bubbles up in an unguarded moment. You know it when everything inside, when you, when you manage to keep everything inside, but you're still confronted with your wicked thoughts and feelings that you're glad no one knows about. Man is wicked by nature. The Edomites, the nation that descended from Esau, was a wicked nation, full of abominable, evil, disgusting practices. And God's wrath is rightly kindled against such evil. The real question is not how could God hate Esau, but how could God let Esau survive as long as he did, as wicked as Esau was? God's love makes a distinction between those on whom he sets his affection and those whom he does not. Those whom God chooses are also gifted his mercy, which is to say he shows his people mercy in Jesus Christ. He sprinkles people with Jesus' blood. He marks them out with mercy. God's people will never know God's hatred Because Jesus Christ has taken upon himself all the punishment that his people deserved. He took all their evil and their wickedness and he counted it as his own so that they could be free of it. And he faced the death and the wrath, the divine, righteous hatred that all that evil and wickedness deserved. God is emphasizing the contrast, He's emphasizing His love by comparing it to His hatred. His hatred is his just wrath against wickedness and evil, against wicked people and evil people. And his love is his tender mercy in Christ for those who repent of their wickedness and believe. If you are here this morning believing in Jesus, you will not know the wrath of God against your sin. You may suffer. You probably will suffer in this life. And you will at time face corrective discipline. And you may also be called to suffer not for discipline, but just in glorious service to our God. But you will not know the wrath of God. You will not face his good hatred. That's how he has loved you. Those who do not receive mercy will receive justice. They will know the just hatred of God for their rebellion and evil. How have you loved us? How? Esau, I have hated Number three, God's love is a preserving love. God's love is a preserving love. When we continue on to see how God elaborates on his hatred of Esau, we're given a more specific picture for contrast. He says, I loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? I have laid waste Esau's hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. At the time that Malachi was prophesying, Israel may not have been a sovereign kingdom anymore, Uh, But things were starting to go much worse for Edom. Their territory was reduced to a tiny fraction of what it once was, beginning around Malachi's time and on through the time of Christ. And by highlighting the present state of Edom, God says to Israel, implicitly by contrast, I have preserved you in and through exile. I have preserved you in a way that I have not for Edom. This contrast continues into the future. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Not only has God preserved you, but he will also continue to preserve and keep you, even as he actively works to bring all other powers and institutions to nothing. One of the ways that God has demonstrated his love concretely for the church is that she endures. This is true of you as individually as a believer. And it's also true of the, the church as a corporate body. Christian, God is preserving you. That is to say, he is preserving your faith. Jesus said, whoever believes in me has eternal life. And later he says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. John, the apostle, recording that, knew just how amazing the presence of faith was. He said in his letter, everyone who is born of God, has been born of God, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Paul, who called faith a gift from God, declared confidently that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. He also said it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is working the will in you. He is working the faith in you. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ says elsewhere, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Endure it as in not buckle, not leave the faith. I'm sure, Paul says, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. It is a done deal. God will preserve you in your faith. Jude announced, God is able to keep you from stumbling. He is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. John and Paul and Jews said those things because they knew that the prayer that Jesus prayed for Peter and Luke, he prays for all of his people. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. God, how have you loved me? You're here. You're still here. You're still believing. That's how God has loved you. Jesus preserves the faith of his followers. He also preserves the existence and witness of their institution, the church. In the high priestly prayer recorded in John's gospel, Jesus prays, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus promised the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Because of the potency of Jesus' death, his power, his right rule, the church will endure. It has to endure. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The psalmist sings, love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful. Do you guys know the borders of the kingdom of Edom? Could you, could you plot it on a map for me? I'm guessing that almost no one in this room could, if anyone. And do you know why? Because no one cares. Do, do you know the god uh, that the Edomites worshipped, or at least centrally worshipped? They worshipped many gods, but do you know their, their god? No one really does. Historians and scholars, best guess is a god named Kos. You ever hear of Kos? No. History has moved on just like it has moved on from Zeus and Jupiter and Baal and Marduk and Dagon and Artigatus and all the other weird ones you've never heard of. It's moved on from Babylon and Greece and Rome. Those religions and empires were powerful and impressive in their time. There are powerful and impressive things today. You you do know the borders of Russia and the U.S. because that's the present. And I'm sure not a single person in this room hasn't heard of Islam. I I guess probably most, if not all of you, know or has met a Muslim. One day history will move on from Russia. One day history will move on from the United States. One day history will move on from Islam. Islam's days are numbered. It spread militarily in the beginning. Still to this day, much of its hold over the world is political and military. The church spread under threat of ridicule and death in the beginning and continues to endure in such places and times where it literally costs people their lives to profess Christ. I mean, so much so that when listening to an account from missionaries from the Middle East, my unbelieving father turned to me and said, Why would anyone convert under those conditions? God preserves the faith of his people. He preserves his church against all external pressures, including the threat of loss and death. And along the way, God destroys all rivals and pretenders, not just Edom of the past, but Edom of the future. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Nothing anyone builds in rebellion against God will last. Not any nation, not any faith, not any culture, not any empire. But the church will endure. How has God loved you? There are still churches in this world, and there always will be. Number four, God's love is a God-glorifying love. God's love is a God-glorifying love. God's love causes people to praise God. Now, I don't mean that God's love will cause praise as a secondary effect. Like, you see God's love and then you praise it because it's so amazing. That's true. But the truth here is actually deeper than that. What I mean by saying that is God is demonstrating love for people by causing them to praise God. that's That's the act of love. God says to Israel in verse 5, Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. You're going to participate in this victory. You're going to say, you're going to see and say. The the specific thing in in context is His justice. That's what they're seeing. That's in the foreground. When you see how this all shakes out, you will praise God. Great is Yahweh beyond the border of Israel. You will recognize him, not just as your personal God, not just as the religious seasoning to your life, but rather as the sovereign Lord of all space and time. You will recognize how his greatness extends without limit, and you will shout it from your heart, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And remember, this is all part of the answer to the question, how have you loved us? Part of the answer to how is, in fact, the, the crescendo to his answer of how he loved them is, I will elicit praise out of you. I will get you to praise me. People ask, how have you loved us? Christian, you might still ask, God, how have you loved me? And one answer is, your eyes shall see and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. But how is that love? Love. How is that an answer to the question how God loves? Why is it a loving thing that God will elicit praise from you to God? Well, it's, it's because of who and what God is in himself. God is the most glorious reality, the foundational reality. God is the most glorious person, the source of all personhood. His glory is fully on display in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Even the most hardened and cynical non-believer marvels when confronted with the most grandeur parts of nature. The rising and setting sun, the grand canyon, the expansiveness of space, the intricacies of the atomic world. It is all marvelous, and everyone knows it. And the creator of all that The creator of all that marvel himself is more glorious than anything he has made. Just think about it logically. The world is full of so much glory. How much more glorious is the creator of all that we enjoy and marvel at? All those joys, all those glories are meant to show us the glory of God. He should be recognized and glorified. And one of the primary problems we will see throughout the book of Malachi as we continue in our series is a disregard for the glory of God. It is a disregard for concern for his name and reputation. It's one of the people's main problems. One of their main problems is they don't see his glory. And it is loving for God to fix this problem. It's wrong to devalue God. It's wrong to scoff at beauty and greatness. We know this. When we encounter someone who fails to appreciate someone or something, to give it its due by its intrinsic greatness, it riles us up. It's an insult. We rightly perceive that when it comes to even relatively minute types of temporal glory. How dare you not appreciate that basketball shot? Or how how dare you not appreciate that meal? How dare you not praise that beauty? How dare you? It is wrong not to give all glory to the most beautiful one. It is wrong not to give all glory to the greatest one. But we do that. We devalue the glory of God. We scoff and we prove ourselves to be myopic, foolish, and ungrateful. To be blind, stupid, and selfish. We not only condemn people who fail to glorify what is glorious, we pity. We pity people who miss out on glories in this life. We are most to be pitied for missing out on the glory of God. We are blind, stupid, and selfish. And perhaps the most amazing thing about God's love is that it removes the blinders. It educates the heart. It draws your gaze outward so that you can see and savor the glory of God. God's love that he sets on his people will elicit praise because it will in all its working display his greatness. You will see God more clearly. You will understand him a little bit better. You will see and say, great is God beyond the border of Israel. Not everyone says that because not everyone can see. And God's love is great precisely because it will let your heart see in such a way that it naturally shouts, great is God beyond the border of Israel. How has God loved you? How has God loved you? He has opened your eyes to see what you ought to see to fully recognize and so enjoy and marvel in his own glory. Let me conclude with this. Christian, how has God loved you? Well, he has a totally different disposition towards you. He chooses you when there is nothing in you that would draw him. He distinguishes you from the world by marking you out with mercy, a mercy that no one outside of Christ will receive. He preserves you through all time, both your faith individually and the church as a whole and he opens your eyes to not miss out on his glory now where does that leave you if you are a non-christian today here listening online these are the true marks of true love that second true is meant to highlight that anything else you might have that you might be tempted to interpret as god's love in your life is false You cannot look at money or success or family, prestige, career, anything of the temporal nature and judge that you are either loved or unloved by God. Many of us, many of you are tempted to think of God's love as generic positive feelings and so you have no problem accepting it when you judge your own life to be marked with pleasure and blessing. But the true love from God is his faith-giving, mercy-showing, faith-preserving, glory-displaying love. His real love is displayed when he saves sinners by giving them faith in Jesus, showing them mercy in Jesus, preserving them in Jesus, and revealing his glory in Jesus. So don't be satisfied with anything else. But perhaps you came in here not falsely assured of God's love, but rather indignantly skeptical of it, like Israel. You came in here saying in your heart, How have you loved me? And now you've heard that according to Malachi, you have not experienced the love of God. What now? Is that it then? Do you just go home? Is that the end? It's not the end. It's not over because you're here now. You're hearing now. I mean, what mercy? You're listening to a sermon on Malachi, a prophet from ancient Judah who gave his prophecy in the 5th century B.C. in a language that you can't read oh the improbabilities for that word to have come to you but there they are on a page in front of you in your lap for you to read and hear and remember god's electing choosing love that he set on his people he sets apart from merit he made his choice before the foundation of the world before you were born and that's actually the best news that you could ever hear Because that means God has ordered history. He has made all things work together so that you, skeptical and indignant though you may be, are here now hearing this word. It is literally right now a word to you. God's choice is not a respecter of persons, meaning he elects and saves, rich and poor, smart and dumb, Jew and Gentile. If your eyes are being opened to your need of Christ, if your eyes are being opened to his worth as creator and savior, if right now you are starting to believe, then he chose you. I have loved you, says the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for the love that you have displayed for us. We confess that so often we do not respond rightly, we do not understand your love rightly, and so I pray that we would hear both the correction and the joy that you offer for us in your word. I pray that we would not go away from Malachi as if hearing nothing, and I pray that you would be working even now in any non-believers who might hear these words to confirm the love that you have had from before the foundation of the world. And so make believers. I ask that you would increase our ability to see and your glory to praise you and enjoy you. I ask that you would be with us as we continue on in Malachi. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.